Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, bringing you the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive startups and leaders. Subscribers get a new episode every Thursday at 6pm, and I'm your host, James Summerall. Hey everybody, this week we're talking about stress, we're talking about the human response to stress, we're talking about resilience, and we're talking about the technology out there that can help you with that stress. And my guest this week is David Plans, and David is the CEO and co-founder of BioBeats, which is an artificial intelligence company dedicated to understanding and promoting human well-being. Now, David's research started by looking at human emotion and how computers might be able to understand human emotion. And eventually that led David into looking at stress and this thing called interoception, which is us understanding our own bodies. So whilst proprioception for those medics that are listening is how you know where your joints are, interoception is knowing that you are hungry, thirsty, tired, etc. And David's got a pretty powerful personal story around this. So he essentially worked himself to the point where he was neglecting his own body. He was malnourished. He was incredibly tired and it actually got to the point where David suffered a cardiac arrest. Now that's obviously given David a huge motivation to start this company and it's on the premise that we live in this increasingly stressful world and it's incredibly hard to find the tools and the time to combat stress properly. And by understanding and building this sort of healthy resilience to stress you can prevent the onset of physical disease. Now They look at heart rate variability, they look at brain function, they look at sleep, they look at physical activity. And by listening to all those things in the human body and harnessing artificial intelligence, they essentially provide this ever-improving cycle of evidence-based interventions by finding patterns that link stress to health risks and physical outcomes. And so they're measuring and they're providing a digital therapeutic and they're measuring and they're providing a different digital therapeutic. And so that cycle is continuous and basically means that you never get to that point, hopefully, where David was at risk of having a cardiac arrest. So I hope you enjoy the episode, guys. And as always, you can head over to the description of this episode to find links to all of our socials and David's contact details. Cool. So David, welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing today? Okay. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome, sir. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today, David? Oxford. Ah, very nice. What's the weather like in Oxford today? Gloomy. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's been gloomy absolutely everywhere today. It's been uh, particularly unpleasant where I am. But yeah, cool. So I already digress. So David, obviously we've had a quick chat before, so I know quite a lot about your background, which is incredibly fascinating, incredibly moving in parts as well, and, and obviously instilled you with a lot of motivation to solve some big problems in healthcare. So for the benefit of our listeners, mate, why don't you tell us a bit about your story? Sure. So I was... Um an AI researcher, and my particular interest was human emotion and how to teach a computer to understand it. And the primary thing that I did was look at improvisatory behavior, how people improvise music, but also behavior, um, creative behavior of of other sorts. And so I did things like create algorithms that imitated human beings and how they move and how they uh, improvise and how they create things like music. And um, and the idea was to translate that sort of understanding into useful things for game engines and for virtual environments where you might want to create a believable human being. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, 
but I also became more and more interested because I was putting sensors and people and trying to understand the bits of AI that could, that could help do this sort of thing. I became interested in emotion itself because it's really a very odd research field. So you and I, it's not a word you often hear next to research or academia emotion. No, no, that's right. So there's a lot of research on emotion, but it's usually for particular purposes, like understanding uh, emotion and autism or understanding, sure. you know, uh, that sort of thing with very specific fields of psychology and so on. But, but people, but people don't really understand it. It's, it's very, so, so actually when you start to try to replicate it and to try to teach you to a machine, it, it becomes really difficult <laughs> because, Interesting. Yeah. Um, right. Because there's no way to really understand um, what's going on. So we have some idea of what goes on in the brain and we have some idea of what goes on in the nervous system, but it's not really, um, when you put the two together, people are just chaotic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, computers don't like that. Computers like very clean instructions and they, they need Zeros and ones. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so I was that sort of researcher um, and I ended up running a software company. That was my first startup. And, um, and we were um, trying to run a merger at the time. And I, I was under a lot of stress and I had a cardiac arrest at Brussels airport. Um, and that kind of put a stopper on things. It made me look at things differently. I um, uh, had to reconvene, you know? So uh, the nurse that woke me up at, in hospital after an ambulance ride um, told me that lots of people like me, and I was wearing a suit at the time, and I assumed she meant people in suits. Hmm. Um, lots of people like me die at airports because they're stressed out and they haven't slept and they're overworked and they haven't eaten. And often they, they, you know, they starve themselves to death. I mean, the, the um, did you know, the, the, the Japanese have a word for this. They right? do. They do. I saw a documentary on it and I was yeah. just trying to think of the word then, but I couldn't remember. Yeah, it's, it's karoshi. And so it's a word that literally translates as death from overwork, but it also includes starvation. And, and actually, when I first, when that first happened to me, I, I came back to the UK and I was, doing every test under the sun to try to figure out what was wrong because I didn't think that people that young could just keel over and die. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and I found that there was nothing wrong with me physically. There was no disorder. Um, and, and obviously, you know, the nurse was right. You know, I had essentially died of overwork and stress. Um, but then I figured that, you know, one of the things that was interesting about the pathology that came back is there's nothing wrong with me, but I was severely malnourished. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So I'd literally forgotten how to eat or, well, you know, to eat at all. Um, and, uh, and I was, you know, obviously drinking and, uh, and, and coffee and alcohol and smoking and doing, they were doing everything you could possibly imagine that you, that you could do that would be wrong and that would put your body in a state where it might uh, conk out. So, so then I, I thought, how is this possible? How can you lose connection to your body in a way that, uh, that is so severe that your body literally checks out and that your mind is still thinking, well, what's wrong, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, so then I, I looked at it. I looked at, the, uh, at occupational sudden mortality and the, the major medical issues behind deaths like that. Um, and it's really just stress and starvation. So it, it's really quite, 
interesting that human beings can go to that extreme. And I, I found that with my background, um, I wanted to understand more and, and I wanted to build a system that could warn uh, people, right? So how could you build an AI that would, instead of trying to, you know, give you the next um, bet you should make or an AI that should, you know, predict investment or the route you should take home or which train to take, uh, you know, an AI that would instead look at your body and your mind and try to warn you when it, they're getting out of sync. Mm. And that's really how the research was born. Um, so I, I pivoted my research. I started retraining as a psychologist and as a cognitive neuroscientist in particular. And I ended up at a lab at Oxford called the Social Cognition Lab, which someone called Jeff Bird runs. And, um, and, and with a particular purpose to try to understand what that is, that divorce between body and mind that, uh, that leads to disorder, that leads to um to to mental illness but also you know burnout it's an incredible story and there's so much in there that i want to ask you about as somewhat of an of an expert in this now i imagine from all of the different things that you've looked at and ways that you've tried to solve this problem hmm. i mean one thing that you mentioned there was losing connection to your body you know the idea that you as the self is independent from your body, i.e., you know, your mind is, is separate from your body. But then wrapped into that as well, it's just the power of the mind and the self to affect the physical body. I think that, I mean, that's something that I've always been super fascinated in because even as a child who's interested in science, it was just sort of, you know, X plus Y equals Z. You didn't, if I couldn't see it, it didn't really exist. If, if I couldn't prove it, it didn't really get, you know, all these different things. And so when people, you know, as you, as you start to get older into your teens and things, they talk about stress causing these different things. I, but way back then when I was that young, you'd just sort of roll your eyes and be like, oh, you know, I was from a decent background and didn't really have any major stresses in my life. So I couldn't really identify with it. Right. But obviously, since being a doctor, I've learned about stress and learned about how genuinely the power of the mind can affect the body. I mean, what was that like for you going going on that learning process? Because the, it, it just seems so fascinating to me that you've taken it to such an extreme that literally your body has just switched off. I mean, that mm. it's, it's incredibly, incredibly powerful just how far that's gone for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it turns out that loads of people do it and um, uh, that, uh, you know, if you, if you then go ahead and run a startup and, and raise funding and, and meet other CEOs and other founders and so on, it's, it's uncanny how many have, how many have similar stories, mm. um, not necessarily in health tech, um, but just across the board. Right. And, and, and those that don't have a personal, uh, story that is similar know somebody who does yeah in, in, um and and it's and it's it gets quite dark right because it's not really just work until you die kind of thing it's also people who have committed suicide who've um who've uh, lost uh you know their ability to work uh, due to psychosis or major breakdowns and and ensuing divorces and lost uh, funding and all mm. that all that stuff and it's quite incredible that that we're that that we're able to do that that we're able to go to such extremes without any um 
any way to to tell that that's what's happening you know why do you why do you think as humans we do that i mean what from like an evolutionary perspective what do you think has led to that because you'd assume if you're super stressed your body requires more you know requires more glucose atp energy oxygen you'd expect you'd you'd expect from an evolutionary perspective we'd have gone the other way i mean that's my superficial thoughts on it just now but why do you why do you think that humans have got to this point well, so think about it this way. If you walk down a street in, uh, in you know, a major city or even a you know, second, third-rate city anywhere, right, in 1900, you would have seen very little advertising. You would have seen very little traffic, yeah. um, very few signs. Um, you know, every interaction would have been quite formalized. And, uh, and there would have been only a few kinds of, of interaction in, in that street, right? Um, people would have been really homogenous. There would have been people from that country and, and very few others. Um, same language, same protocols, same understandings. Now you walk down a street in a major city in the world and you can hear you know, 30 different languages. There's advertising everywhere. There's communication embedded into everyone's you know, steps and people are walking around with computers that um, you know, 50 years ago would have been impossible to imagine that we might realize in such a small mm. form. Factor. And then on top of that, you have this constant input going on, right? Uh, that, that comes through devices like that, but also just constant interaction with everything else that's going on. And the comparison for the human mind of like how much time has passed is infinitesimally small between 1900 and now, right? mm. from an evolutionary terms. From evolutionary terms, we have two ways to respond to stress. One is to run away, right? The fight or flight response. Yeah. Uh, and the other is to stay where you are and and deal through, as in ignore it. And what we do constantly in, in modern society now is to do the latter. Mm. We don't have a choice to run away. It's there's, like, nowhere, there's literally nowhere to run. <laughs> yeah. exactly, right. So we, we're dealing with amounts of adrenaline and amounts of cortisol and amounts of uh, small kicks to the to the sympathetic nervous system that are more continuous and, and larger in number and, and more variegated in their type and, um, and, um, and in their frequency than ever before. And it's such an exponential rise in that sort of constant input um, that actually it's no surprise, right, that it's, it's getting harder to do that. But that, I don't think that's quite the answer, right? I think the answer to your question is more complicated than that. I think, yeah, there's loads more input. Yes, it's much more stressful, um, sure. But I think it probably was just as stressful to cower in the dark in a cave uh, thinking <laughs> that I was going to eat you, right? <laughs> um, Possibly. Uh, I'm not sure that, that was any less stressful than, than, um, than finding a conflictive email or having an investor quit on you or something like that, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. But, but there is something that, that we do that is quite unique as humans, and that is that we carry ideas through beyond the capacity we have to cope with the consequences um, physically, we, we essentially step out of our bodies and there's no, no animal does that other than us. Because of our ability and, to have a consciousness. Yeah, but it's not just consciousness, right? You, you can, you can, you can see uh, consciousness in, in, in primates all over the place. True. It's not, right? It's, it's more than consciousness. It's the sort of realization that we're limited by these shells mm. and that actually that limitation itself sometimes just gets ignored, right? People decide to 
you know, walk up Everest, which is a, a, an unbelievably yeah. stupid thing to do. Right? <laughs> <laughs> or, or they decide to row across the Atlantic or, or you know, run ultra marathons one after the other, uh, ignoring the fact that their knees and feet are giving way and that their entire cardiovascular system is, is, is collapsing. They will literally run to their deaths just to see if they can. Yeah. And it's such a, it's complete ignorance of the, of the entire system that they've been given um, because they, they transcend it. They literally, we, we tend to want to transcend our physical bodies and it's not, it's, um, it's, it's a really interesting problem, right? Because if you, if you look at it from a health technology perspective, building a warning system to tell somebody, yeah, okay, well done transcending your body, but I just got to tell you, you've got just the one and it is about to shut down. Right? Yeah. That is an interesting thing to want to tell somebody because ultimately I don't think any human being wants to hear that. They, they, they will just carry on. Right. So if you, so the interesting thing that I found in, in terms of working in this space for the last 15 years is that, Actually, the more I research it, the more I realize that um, it's, it's a really hard thing to do. You can even tell somebody to meditate, right? And that's even, that's less difficult to do. And that's probably the hardest habit to instill in anybody, meditation, right? You can, you can, sooner, you can sooner have people quit smoking than you can mm. actually teach them how to meditate. So, but beyond that, there's another thing that's even harder to ask a human being to do, and that is to pay attention um, to, their, to their bodies. It's like, you know, okay, pay attention, not meditate, not think about, you know, loving kindness or compassion or a candle or, or whatever. Actually, you just sit and pay attention. And um, that's ridiculously hard to do, right? And, and then say, okay, if you really pay attention, you'll notice that your body is saying slow down and no one wants to do that either, right? Nobody wants to slow down. So, I think this is the inherent problem, yeah, and, and and probably I don't know, probably as close to an answer as I can come up to your question. Yeah, yeah it's it's so fascinating, and so my my girlfriend goes on about me to to me all the time about this, right? Because I I'm notoriously I used to use the phrase very good at ignoring hunger, for example, thirst, yeah. for example. You know, as a junior doctor, you'll go, honestly, you'll go 12 hours without drinking, <laughs> without water in, without water out, let's put it that way, of, of the body. You know, the, the stresses that you put on your body as, as a junior doctor are, are certainly up there. Yeah. Me then starting my own business, with, uh, you know, raising a venture capital fund and do, doing all these things, you know, obviously the, the work doesn't quite stop when you leave medicine because I'm doing all of these things. So I've picked these, these I suppose, quite deliberately very difficult things because it's part of my personality. But I, I used to say I'm very good at skipping lunch. I'm very good at ignoring when my body needs something. I'm very good at this, very good at that. And I realize now that's just only good in the context of, it's feeding <laughs> the capitalist machine, arguably. It's certainly not filling me up from um, from a perspective of what I need, quite literally, with with what my body needs. You know, it's it's mm. quite interesting. It's, it's often it's often a badge of honour. You know, as, especially people in the medical field that oh, I worked so hard today. I didn't even take a break. I didn't even stop for a drink. I didn't even go to talk. You know. It's just a very strange, it's a strange thing to glamorize when, when you're absolutely right. You've got people in Japan how, where it's so common that there's a word for working yourself to death. 
yeah, just yeah. Uh, just very interesting reflection. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's not, so it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? You're you're a doctor, not a hedge fund manager. I mean, it's you working hard has um, um, you know better brownie points from a morality standpoint than somebody trading in weapons and gold. Right? Correct. Correct. So it's, <laughs> so it's it's uh, it's an interesting conundrum because you think, okay, well. There's nothing wrong with the doctor working hard. I mean, they're, they're a doctor for a reason, and they want to help, and um, and that's and, and that's commendable. And then you see what it does to people, and why so many doctors smoke, and why yeah. you know, like um, and how they ignore their own. Well, yeah, it's physician heal, heal thyself, right? You just mm. think, right? How does that happen? And and then, well, you know, ignoring doctors for a second, you you're touching on a concept that um, that that. Uh, that's that I think you could use interoception, the word interoception as as defining that, right? Um and and, and I think you, you probably know there's you know perception, which is the outside world coming in, and then proprioception, which is how you move in that world, and yeah. interoception, which is the inside world and hunger and thirst and all that. But interoception is really weird because it is the only common denominator in every single DSM classification of disorder, of mental disorder. Interesting. And no one pays attention to that, right? Everyone, you know, aside from how fluid the, the DSM may be, you know, as a psychiatric um, catalog of disorders, no one's really paid attention to the fact that there is only one common denominator to all psychiatric disorders, and that is disrupted interoception. So mm. wherever you find somebody who doesn't remember to eat, you will find somebody who's in trouble. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is the reason that people bring food to funerals because when somebody is in serious trouble mentally, they forget the body. They, they basically bypass it. They stop drinking. They stop eating. They just don't remember. And uh, that signal being disrupted is a serious problem. This is why Karoshi doesn't just apply to death from stress. It's death from stress and starvation. You yeah, see what malnutrition, I mean? yeah. Yeah, so, so that's... What an interesting result. point about funerals as well. You know, yeah. I talked about, you know, evolutionary perspective. I mean, that's evolution in the, I guess, the modern world. But yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that makes complete sense to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when, when you look at it that way, then it's... Um, it's interesting because I mean, you know, obviously I, I started doing this as a researcher, but eventually I saw that I couldn't get enough scale to teach algorithms what this condition is like, right? So yeah. if you want to teach an algorithm how a human being does this, how they overwork um, themselves past the point of, um, of, of being well, then you need that algorithm to understand the human condition. And that's no small task, right? Why, why do people do this? How do they think? How do they feel? Why does feeling get in the way of thinking? And why do thoughts get in the way of feeling, right? So it's really an interesting and vast problem. But once you, well, you do it for long enough, you realize that you need to do it at scale. And, I, and we, we did, right? It's not, we, we tried to do it in clinical trials and in studies, but it was too small. So having raised venture capital to do this in at scale, you then find different, really interesting problems at scale, right? So we had, for example, 600 bankers um, in London, uh, BNP Paribas, who are a French bank, mm. during the Brexit vote. 
And we had sensors on, on them that told us skin temperature, ambient temperature, heart rate, heart rate variability, which can tell you a lot about the autonomous nervous system state um, and is an indicator of mental state or at least uh, physical stress related to that, as well as GPS location um, and, uh, and galvanic skin response. I mean, we had a ton of data on these people, right? Hmm. And, uh, and then without meaning to, without having designed it, of course, during the few months that we that we were you know monitoring them, the Brexit vote happened, and and it turned out the way it turned out, and then every screen in that building went red. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So suddenly we had people not sleeping, uh, people sending emails at three a.m., people not eating, um, forgetting entirely to eat. Um, so we had massive, massive autonomous nervous system disruption um, in all six hundred people, all at once. And that was, you know, a godsend, of course. Goodness it was, me. All yeah. 600. Mm, yeah, to, to a person. And, and keep wow. in mind that we'd already seen really interesting things, like all 600 of them got more stressed out when they went home than when they went to work. <sighs> right? So they literally were uh, double agents, right? At work, they had the tools of work. They had the, their, their <laughs> They had their protocols. Yeah. Um, but when they went to work, they were still at work mentally, but now they had to be mothers, they had to be fathers, right? So they were pretending, they were double agents, right? And so they would sneak to the loo and send emails. And they would tell us the stuff, by the way, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then we saw like what they were doing in terms of, uh, you know, taking care of themselves. And, and it was astonishing when, when you actually monitored what they did, right? You, so they would wake up, they would drink coffee, barely ever, and, and very, very few of them would eat um, and then, you know, it, it would go lunchtime and, uh, you know, a few of them would eat, but not that many. And then towards the end, they would snack on something or other. And then they would go to the pub and drink five, eight pints um, and, you know, do more stuff, um, illicit stuff, and then go home and pass out on whiskey and Valium. <sighs> Sleep an average of five to seven hours or less and then do it all again, right? And this for months at a time, right? So we saw people who basically didn't look like they were sleeping at all. They, they looked like zombies. So they went into a practically a coma for uh, an hour after they fell asleep. And then they, they basically you know, had this waking titillation until they woke up and uh, did more coffee. And, and that, that, is, that was, uh, you know, from a machine learning standpoint, from an AI standpoint, it was, it was an amazing model to watch building it uh, in real time, right? Because it was like, okay, well, right. These, these people are extreme. Not everybody is like that. But when you see an extreme event like that is a little bit like firing a, a shotgun in a church, right? Hmm. If you want to record that space, you, you, it's not enough to click your fingers and then record what happens after that. You need to fire something really loud. And then the reverb that you record afterwards, if you take the gunshot out, gives you a real sense of how big that space is, right? Mm. Well, that's what that event was like. You know, Brexit was like, you know, a bomb going off in the background. And then we recorded what happened afterwards and how people recovered from that. And it was just uncanny because, I mean, obviously you could tell people who just weren't recovering, people who just stayed up in shock and, um, and didn't, didn't recover. And, and yeah, so from that perspective, that's when I started to understand, okay, yeah, this can be done. You can actually monitor the physiology, the, the, the sort of 
uh, neuroendocrinology of what stress does and why people forget their bodies. It's actually, you know, they become out of body um, uh, zombies at that stage. It, you can see it in the data. It's, it's funny, just even, even as you explain it to me now, like I feel like in, in some elements, like you're holding a mirror up and just going like, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is exactly what you're doing in the times in your life where you do that. One of my friends talks about, he calls it the cycle, you know, the, the cycle where everything's okay, work's going well, relationships going well, friends are going well, sports going well, you know, all your extracurricular stuff's going well. And then, you know, on, on, sometimes it's six months, sometimes it's a year, like on, on whatever cycle it is, things start to not go so well. And then you've sort of got a choice whether you, you sort of dig deep, pick yourself up and okay, one of your pillars might be down, whether it's your relationship, whether it's your job, whether it's your friends, you know, mm. one of them might be down, but it's whether you pick yourself up or whether it just spirals out of control and then you're down for a, for a longer cycle, then and you're not going to get back for another year and all these different things. It's, mm. it's, it's almost put, this is putting the science behind that kind of very anecdotal language as well. And, and it's, it's making me just, just think of it about all the times where, you know, one of those pillars goes down and you've, you have had to pick yourself up and that it, it is, just an incredibly stressful period. And I mean the word stressful as, as you're describing it now, you know, that kind of physical insult to your body and those people that you're describing there. I mean, okay. One of those, one of those pillars that I've described goes down. It can be quite a short term recovery, but something like you've described, like, you know, a really big political event, which, which seeps deep into the consciousness of people and, and makes them, you know, question who they are and, and where they are and, and, you know, whether other people mm. are looking at them and they can't speak their home language because they're, they're afraid of what people might think, you know, all these different things, that physical yeah. insult to the body. I mean, it's just, as you say, continuous and we're just not built for that. We're just not built for a really sustained high level of cortisol and adrenaline it, it, it no wonder it, it it provided you with as you say just such a rich amount of data to work with to then go and solve the problem yeah absolutely um and it's interesting that you know the problem that we're trying to solve and the problem that i'm interested in solving is you know if you look at mental health right now it's um it's early days right we know very little even though you know the we spent the last 150 years really trying to understand and, and well before that, obviously, but, you know, in the last 150 years, we've tried to medicalize the process whereby we try to understand mental health. And, and still we basically uh, run it as a reactive problem. And, you know, most medicine is like that. And you're, you're a doctor, you understand that. So we, we wait until the leg breaks. We don't find yeah, the leg isn't broken. Right. Of course. <laughs> so, so it's a, uh, so, but with the the problem is that with the human mind, because it sort of has the ability to to transcend its vessel, it's not, you know, it's not good enough to wait until it breaks. Because when it does, all kinds of stuff goes wrong, and it's not really, you know, the the physical consequences of mental disorder are, in my mind, at this point, really all the ramifications of mental disorder. It's it's like looking at an iceberg, and mm. you see the tip, it's mental health, and you don't see the massive monolithical iceberg that is lurking underneath the, the waterline um, that is physical health. And, but once mental health goes on, on a borderline, right? Once the, the, the person has been under a constant stream of cortisol for, for long enough and the nervous system starts to experience serious disruption, um, that balance between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system once it breaks, it's very hard to put back. You can't fix it. Really? 
<laughs> so, and that's the problem. You know, and that, I'm starting to see that we're, we're approaching it entirely wrong. It's not possible to continue to assume that the NHS, for example, will just treat people with CBT once they're courageous enough to break through the stigma of mental that's health. It. Go to their GP and admit that they that they're having difficulties coping or whatever. Um, it, that's not. It doesn't work for everybody, and it's it's. There's a reason why that's the case, and that's because, uh, you know, techniques, cognitive and behavioral techniques like CBT don't actually reconnect people to their bodies. They're just cerebral answers to um, a problem that isn't just cerebral. So you still have people, you know, walking around disembodied who are who are now thinking differently and maybe coping better, but who ultimately are still suffering. So we're completely reactive. We're not preventative, and um, and we're looking at it uh, partially the wrong way. It's, um, yeah. So on that note, then, mm. tell me about BioBeats. Oh yeah, so so BioBeats is essentially the the business um, side of of this research and. Like I said, we, we came at this research from the point of view of how can we build real-time warning systems for mental health? And, and then eventually we realized that actually, if you're gonna build a, war, uh, a warning system, you had better something, you had better have something interesting to say after you issue that warning, right? <laughs> right. Correct. <laughs> so it's really not good enough to say, hey, your stress is gonna kill you, and then not have an answer to what is it I need to do to fix it, right? So we started to look at therapeutics that could um, live in the digital domain, so digital therapeutics that could help. Um, and once we'd achieved a big enough scale, it made sense to raise capital because we needed to understand what looking at tens of thousands of people might be, not just tens uh, of, of them, right? So, mm. you know, the biggest clinical, the, the biggest trial that I'd been a part of was only like a thousand people. So um, once we met our co-founder in San Francisco, who'd been working on a company called Basis, who then sold to Intel, they'd experienced serious scale and they'd built something that had all the sensors that I needed in order to, to build the platform out. Um, and it just made sense, right? So we knew that with enough capital, we could then go out to the, to the app stores and gather people. And so we had a, a private beta. Well, it was, it was an open beta really, but this, the, the beta that we ran in the first step that we made was around 182,000 people. Wow. That was enough, right? It's not like millions and millions because we weren't after B2C traction. We were just after the data. Um, but it was a way to gather a big enough data set to start to understand what, what should be done. And then we started working with uh, corporations. And, and, so, and that's really what Biobeats is today. Biobeats is um, uh, an artificial intelligence company. And at our core, we focus on... Um, evidence-based uh, practice. So we, we, we write uh, algorithms that try to detect um, mental, mental disorder and we, we offer digital therapeutics to try to treat it. It's good, it's good that you do both. Um, and it's, it's an interesting journey, isn't it? Trying to, I suppose, come from that academia and research angle to then into commercialization. And it sounds like you did something extremely useful, which was to partner with somebody or co-found the company with somebody who had I guess, exited to a big tech company, which makes complete sense. Mm. What was it like in the early days then of, of converting this idea into something tangible in reality? And, and how did you go about sort of building the initial product? 
Yeah, so, so we realized that actually for this to be useful, it needed to be a service, right? It needed to be a digital health service that used AI to really empower people to take control of their well-being. But it also meant that in combining the psychological, physiological, and neurological data to, to try to build this preventative algorithm, that we needed to look at how organizations um, uh, work in occupational health and in HR. We needed to empower them too, not just the individuals. So we knew that we wanted to be evidence-based, that it needed to be a science-based behavior change approach to well-being. Um, and we needed to be preventative, not reactive. So we needed to provide real-time data and insights to prevent adverse physical and mental health. And we needed to connect the body and mind, and we needed to personalize clinically proven well-being content, so therapeutics, um, to support individuals, but ultimately it needed to get them where they are, where they spend most of their time, and that's the workplace. So we wanted to help employees find what their mental health baseline was, and then you know rise above it, like understand how to work through, but also just optimize for better mental health. But then we needed to provide the workplace itself with data to support organizational change. So yeah. understanding how do you get a whole organization to, to understand, uh, you know, uh, how to, how to uh, get people to optimize for, for better mental health. So it's, it's so, so what we ended up building uh, tries to identify trends, provide data driven uh, HR strategies um, and, uh, and, and it relies on, on what we built initially for individuals, but, it, but, it, but for organizations. I really like there that you said that you knew initially that it needed to be a service. I, I really, really like that because mm. you'd be forgiven for building this out as a tool. You'd be forgiven for building this out as uh, a product which is up to other people to see how they use it and how it fits in. It's a really good... I guess you've claimed the responsibility of knowing that this is quite a powerful thing that you're doing here. And actually, if you own the entire service, you can create the most impact because no doubt people would buy this if you just sort of productized it and put it out there and, and you know, didn't really look after the, the patient as a whole at either end. People would still buy it and they'd probably use it. But I, I really like the fact that you've acknowledged that something which you know someone said to me once which i've not really ever forgotten which is that healthcare isn't a product healthcare isn't a collection of products healthcare is a service and the best yeah. the best 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 startups that i know and and i get really to be honest the only real scalable health tech startups that i know are wrapping an entire service around their product it seems to be the, the both the the moral and ethical thing to do but also it makes the most commercial sense yeah, I think so. I think, you know, and often when you start with the, uh, with a service mindset and a moral mindset, you end up making good business sense. Correct. That's, that is, that is how I feel about it. So tell me now then, what does it look like for a person using your, let's call it service for, from end to end? If, if I'm, if I'm part of an organization that, that has, that has bought your service on mass and, and is deploying it to me, What's my experience from a, from a user perspective? So you would, you would probably get an email from HR saying, hey, we're partnering with this startup who are, who, who are looking at how to use AI to, to uh, improve mental health of whole organizations. And would you like to take part in this trial? And, um, and then if you did want to take part, you'd be shipped a little box with a wearable inside 
a wearable that we've designed that essentially doesn't care how many calories you've burnt or whether you ran faster today than yesterday. <laughs> but who is adding more stresses in, you know? <laughs> no, but it's a wearable that's designed solely to look at how your sleep uh, goes and what your uh, body is saying. So it's listening to uh, the body and it's trying to gather signs of stress and to help you understand what the, what the story your body wants to tell you is. Um, and then an app that um, that gets all that data on sleep and on mood and on stress um, and on cognitive uh, function, and then tries to put a picture together for you around what we call a well-being score. And this is a score that we've validated scientifically, and it tracks. So, for example, the score is valid against the Warwick Edinburgh uh, Mental Well-Being Scale, the Spielberg the Spielberger State and Trade Anxiety Inventory. Um, so we know that the score, the way that it was put together uh, at the machine learning level is equivalent to and tracks alongside known clinical measures of mental well-being. Yeah. And that score gives you a sense of where you are. And it's, it's your baseline, right? And over the first three days, you would get some coaching on um, how the nervous system works, why stress isn't just a mind thing and also a body thing, uh, why being in your body is really important and uh, to, in order to understand. And, and, and improve your stress resilience. Um, and then you'd get some questions. And those questions would kind of um, help the app personalize therapy for you. So um, what's your job like? And how much control do you have over the work you do? And how many, how many demands are placed on you? And, uh, um, and, uh, and, and what is it that's available to you overall in, in terms of resources to cope with those demands? And then, you know, questions on stress and questions on um, uh, to screen for depression and things like that. Um, and then, you know, you, you use that personalized therapy to, 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 um, to move through the course and to uh, whichever strand you've ended up in and then to form a better relationship with, um, with the body narrative. And what we see four to eight weeks into any deployment is that we increase mental well-being along the Warwick Edinburgh scale and we decrease levels of uh, mental stress and state and trace anxiety by at least 16% on average um, with people doing this. And, and that's essentially the, the, the experience you'd have. That's amazing. And so maybe a bit more granular then, what are some of the things that the organizations tend to learn about, I mean, do organizations learn about the way that they are doing things, the way they are treating their, their employees? Is that, is that a learning curve that happens or is it more focused on what the individual learns about how they deal with the pressures of the organization? I mean, where does the learning take place and where does the sort of the, 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 the change take place? Yeah, so it's both. And, and so far we focused um, on the individual the most, right? So we wanted to give the individual the tooling to understand how this sure. But increasingly, we're focusing on the organization as well. And it took a little while because it takes a long time to convince people to give you things like their absence data, right? So yeah. it's hard for organizations to be that open. So it was really a process of open innovation between that. And now that we're, for example, I mean, we're now we're starting to engage with um, innovation accelerators in the NHS and trying to figure out how we could bring this therapeutic program that we've now validated where we can see efficacy under randomized control trials to primary care. We didn't want to do that until 
we were sure that it worked in people who were not diagnosed, who weren't suffering from an actual mental disorder. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. And it's an interesting space to play in, isn't it? When you're dealing with sort of shades of normal rather than something that's been diagnosed and you're trying to go mm-hmm. from unwell to well, where it can be a bit more obvious as to as to the step change. It can be a bit clearer. And actually, you know, when you're when you are dealing with shades of normal, it, it's I see a lot of companies playing in that space simply because they they perceive they perceive it as they don't need to do as many things through the regulatory components or they see it as far less yeah. red tape and, and all these different things. And so they don't hold themselves to as high a regard in, in terms of the evidence that they're collecting or the evidence behind what they're doing, or in, even, you know, look what they're looking at going forwards in terms of the, that service and how they're looking after the patients. And I see that people in that, in that kind of optimizing normal space, it's that there's definitely a range of companies in which you guys are very, very, very clearly at the point of, it wouldn't really matter if, if you were giving, you know, medical advice, you, you know, you could easily turn, flip this into a class two medical device. I imagine just simply because you're holding yourself to such a standard of, of research for what you're doing which yeah. W- yeah which sounds great and obviously you coming from academia and i assume a lot of your team coming from health and things i mean that that, that kind of evidence-based world is where we're from and it's where we're comfortable and it's where we like because yeah. everything's ultimately defensible but I, I imagine you have competitors that, that that aren't so uh aren't so stringent on their evidence let's say no and and you know it's not necessarily a bad thing right so people like calm and headspace have produced amazing content that has broken through the idea of what it means to try to take care of your mental health, that, that alone is an amazing achievement, right? Mm. The fact that they've produced content uh, pipelines that are giving people, you know, the, the time, the space, the, 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 engage, the engaging media to, uh, to, to understand their mental health a little better and to work towards um, better mental health. I mean, that's, that's amazing. And and we don't want to detract from that in any way or from the work of uh, real life human therapists who day by day see people, right? What what we thought was really needed was an evidence-based approach that component by component was built looking at the evidence of, where, of whether we can have real-time intelligence that catches people before they go into disorder, before they need a tremendous amount of help. Um, and that can then personalize digital therapeutics that aren't that, that try to you know um, stave off disorder and to to avoid it altogether maybe even. But what we see, and and, and, and you know this has led to us doing uh, studies longitudinal and then uh, with active controls and now with randomized controls and double blind placebo controlled trials, where we see uh, where we're starting to see serious evidence and we're you know crafting an FDA application around it for generalized anxiety and we will do um, major depressive disorder next and that's awesome that's great but underneath it we see the result the results we get within companies where people have deployed solutions from from comp- you know competitors of ours where they've deployed this amazing content um, really worthwhile content but when we come into their organization and we actually give them the the analysis data that we see, um, then it's actually quite a, for them, it's quite a shock, right? Mm. Because we see, for example, 16% of people screening for depression, um, for like clinical measures of depression and they're right in the thick of it. 16% of our entire workforce, right? 
and that 40% are, are screening below the national average for mental well-being and, um, and, uh, and very seriously high on the clinical scales for stress. Um, and that obviously, you know, they haven't had enough help, but that's the first learning, the, the first um, learning that, that they see. But, but then there's other problems. The fact is that if you cannot measure what happens when you give somebody the idea of meditation or you give the idea of somebody of mindfulness or, um, or principles of cognitive behavioral therapy, if you can't measure where they're at and, and how they're reacting to, to the therapeutic, then you have very little understanding. You, first of all, you, you cannot control adherence. You have no idea, right? Mm -hmm. They may or may not be listening. They may or may not be internalizing these principles. Their bodies may or may, or may not be becoming more resilient to stress. You have no idea how they're sleeping. You have no idea whether they're ruminating late at night. I mean, it's really, you have no idea, right? So, yeah. so that's what we wanted to fix. It's not that the, the world is wrong and we're trying to put it to rights. It's more like this could be done so much better than it is today. And we could have a far more involved duty of care um, for people experiencing uh, both, you know, uh, mild levels of, of, mental, uh, of mental disorder and acute ones. So the fact that you go into an organization, you find that 16% of, of people screen for very serious depression and have never received any help or gone to see an occupational health officer or even had a conversation with HR about it. There is no record that they've ever presented, presented symptoms at their GP. And nonetheless, they're coping with clinical levels of depression. Mm. Yeah. So, so it's really quite... Uh, so the way I've come to think about it is that actually where I think will be the most help is not necessarily in creating better digital therapeutics. I plan on doing that. I mean, it looks like we can. That's awesome. But actually where I think will be of most help is in cleaner, earlier referral lines. Interesting. There's, there's just so much there's so much that i like about this and so much that i actually didn't know about this and i knew i knew of you guys and i i knew i'd read about you and i i looked you up and, and things but I, I had absolutely no idea that this that you're kind of i don't know that the research ran so deep and, and and the analysis ran so deep i mean it's yeah it's just it's so interesting for me to learn about I, I'm interested now then in, in something that you mentioned there that, that obviously that, you know, you're going to make better digital therapeutics and things, but you already do make digital therapeutics. So obviously you've, you've got all this research and you're, you're, you're in organizations and doing these analyses on, on their employees and, you, and you're seeing you, what must be so many clear needs occurring. Yeah. And so you, by owning that as a pipeline, you can then start developing the solutions, which you've mentioned are digital therapeutics. I mean, what, what are some of the things that you've been creating as solutions to some of the problems that you're uncovering? So I think the first one was um, an intervention that had the health and safety executives questionnaire structure built in so that we could understand how to apply the HSE's own um, guidelines from within an intervention that would then segment people along something called the, the Jobs, Demands and Resources model, or JDR. Now, the interesting thing about this is that what we designed takes into account what happens in organizations, so at a sort of organizational psychology level, but then segments people along where they need help to make sure that we uh, change their relationship to work itself and then change rela their relationship to stress. So it's actually, 
that has been really successful and we can see efficacy for that. So that was essentially the product that we launched in September, which we can uh, see has had uh, has that efficacy already. And it's based on what we've learned over the years on interventions that we that we created that were much smaller than that. So we created uh, interventions before that were based on biofeedback, that were based on small CBT principles, where we literally used biofeedback to teach somebody how to breathe uh, diaphragmatically as a person from the chest, and then taught them how that elicited the parasympathetic uh, and relaxation response and how to use that in situ in, in stressful situations. That's the, bit, that's the bit that I think you do differently. It's that, it's, it's that you're not only just telling people breathe in, breathe out, you know, take deep breaths and engage yeah. the diaphragm, you know, really open yourself. You're not just saying those things just because, you know, it, it's common knowledge to do that. What you're then saying is the effect on the parasympathetic nervous system. You're then, you're not patronizing the user. You're actually just going in and actually by educating them about what's actually happening, they can then, I guess, believe that this is going to work because you're literally telling them hard science of why it works which i think is the bit that i've not really heard before i, th I think that for so i mean for someone like me who would get you know i'd feel patronized very easily by, by something yeah. like that yeah. you know it, yeah. but even growing up you know i wouldn't know what the words meant but i'd be like oh this is this is based in science this is all right you know it, it's a completely different yeah. way of approaching it yeah and and you know the thing is um how it works is a really important thing right not not explaining but showing how Correct. it works yes right? exactly but even more important than that is whether it worked right? <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it's such a, a good point it's a kind of you know i can explain all i all you want right and we we can we can give you data you know up to kazoo about uh, um, you know what happened but the really key question is did it work right? yeah are you doing it right? Is it working yet? I mean, that's, that's questions that no one's answering. And I, I'm sort of uh, flabbergasted that we're still not answering the, the, the right questions. Like the right questions to ask are, is this therapy working for this individual? How can we see that it is working? How can we show the user whether it's working or not? If it's not working, what can we change? What's not working? How isn't it yeah. So not so, only not only are you a, a service which looks after people from beginning to end, you're also yeah. personalizing it. Now that that is where it starts to get okay. These guys are going to do very well. So here's the really important thing, right? Telling somebody how something works. You know, here's how meditation works. Here's how the nervous system works. Here's how fight or flight works. That's all useful, but, but telling somebody, okay, do this, and not measuring whether it works. That's useless advice, right? That's yeah. a chocolate teapot right there, <laughs> right? It's like, well, okay, you know, now you know how to meditate. Now go away and spend years practicing. It's like, well, yeah, that's useful advice in some ways. And definitely with the kind of content that Calm have created, it's, it's super engaging advice, right? It's, it's amazing. So you can, you know, every day you get so amazing content that's really enjoyable and bit by bit you build a practice. Amazing idea. Now, Here's the problem. How do you know when somebody should meditate? Right? Mm. What is the right time for that person to do that? It, isn't it important to know this? And even, and even um, after that, once you've solved this huge problem, of like, are you just going to send a push notification at 9 a.m. every day saying meditate? Right? Mm. Um, if you could detect when the person gets in trouble, 
and how their circadian rhythm is disrupted, how the um, autonomous nervous system is disrupted, how their mind joins in, right? How that divorce between mind and body happens. When does it happen? Did it just happen now, right? Is this the right time to talk to that person and intervene and say, hey, um, you're getting off kilter and I can help, talk to me, right? Having that, like that opportunity to intervene um, needs intelligence. It needs real-time intelligence. So that's what's so, it's so true, actually. The, the other day, somebody asked me, one, again, one of my friends who I've spoken to, I speak to him about meditation every now and again. Um, he came to it a little bit later than I did. But yeah, he asked me recently, you know, how much are you meditating in it? Are you meditating in it at, at the minute? And my response to him was that at the minute, I don't need it. And I, I sort of reflected afterwards. I mean, I don't know if that was the right answer. I'm not sure whether you're meant to just keep doing it all the time. I, I don't really know what the best things are to do because I'm pretty much a beginner at it anyway. But I will only yeah. do it if I really feel like I need to. And I do feel like it helps when I do that. And I think that's enough for me to stay, as you say, introspective and, and therefore on top of things, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's exactly the, the point, right? Is that sometimes you won't notice, right? Because you're working very hard. And um, especially when you have lots of things yeah. going on. You might start ignoring the body. You might start ignoring the, the, the bit of your mind that needs a bit of help. And uh, you might not get to the point where you think, oh, I need to do a, a little bit of meditation until later on. Yeah. Right? So I want an algorithm that can tell you earlier. It's just like, well, yeah. Okay. So I see a little bit of, prob uh, of uh, you know, I see a couple of issues. Your sleep optimization is waning. Um, you know, your level of rumination is higher than it used to be. Your autonomous nervous system is under more strain. And here's where, where the inflection point is. I can start to predict when it's going to be bad enough that you usually would then meditate, right? Mm. So then if you intervene for five, 10 minutes at a time before that happens, you just don't get to the point where you need to. You, you, like, you, you get there much earlier on and you change and adapt so that the system um, stays balanced. That's the objective. And the thing is, before we do that, mental health really isn't going to change. It's going to continue to be adaptive. It's going to continue to be, I mean, it's going to be, continue to be reactive and we're going to still have, you know, uh, people basically running to the brink. I absolutely love what you're doing, David. Honestly, I, I think, I think this is, this is incredible. And, and just to put some, I guess some meat on those bones. I think the fact that you're you're in the prevention and early intervention space, I really like that. I really like the fact that you're so evidence based, and you know, to the nth degree, you're evidence based. I like the fact that you're a, a full service and you look after people end to end, and you're adding the element of personalization as well. I think as a formula for a successful health tech company. Any entrepreneur that is listening that has an idea in any sort of prevention, early intervention space, if you can then tick those other three boxes of being evidence-based, being a service looks, that looks after people end-to-end -end, and being able to personalize it for each, for each person that comes through um, your service, I think you're onto an absolute winner. And I think you guys are a, a wonderful example of a business that, that's doing what I perceive most things right in in health tech and, and certainly all the bits that i've asked you about i i really think you guys are doing well i mean is is this available just b2b do you have a b2c model that that i can just shift this to a few of my friends that absolutely need it <laughs> so i mean yeah, first of all thank you um for the recognition there but i 
so we don't, we're not going to go back to B2C just yet. Um, really early on in our first B2C deployment, we had some people with very active suicidal ideation. Um, yeah. And, and, and that was a, a wake up call, right? Of understanding what adequate duty of care um, mechanisms sh should be there, should be, be and, and how to manage that situation. And, um, you know, so I spent um, a few hours with several people who were very much on the edge, talking them down, um, realizing both that I didn't have the training that someone in that situation should have, and that um, and that, I, that we'd made a mistake in 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 not realizing that that was going to happen. So yeah, so I was re really so shocked by that right it, it sort of um to me it meant two things right the, well the first one was we cannot do that again ever mm. until we've got enough evidence that the that the uh every that every component that we have from the therapeutic to the to the measurement to you know just diagnostic level is absolutely validated and robust and that we understand the consequences of every single bit of, of therapeutic intervention and its, and its um, pathways, right? Like mm. that we understand every possible consequence and that we then have a plan for each. And the other thing that we needed to, to do before we ever went back to B2C, I resolved was that we had to, that we had to um, try it at scale, that we had to understand what it was, what it would be like to take care of many thousands of people at a time and to really understand what happens when, um, the system is stressed out and uh, our system, I mean, and, and to never, you know, never fail again to acknowledge that people will do things like send a message through the technical support line when they're thinking of killing themselves. And that's, it's unexpected. It's not something you can design for, um, but it's part of what happens in, a, in, 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 a, in, a, in our field. So, yeah, so we will go back to B2C and, and I hope it'll be soon. And certainly our FDA application hints at a, at a well, very much is a, um, a digital therapeutic that, that. Nice. And so you must be then in a fair few UK organizations and it sounds then like you're expanding to the US. Yeah, true. So, um, you know, the, the UK is um, a great uh, country to prototype things in and to, and to try things out. Um, it's got a, a more homogenous healthcare system than the US and it's suddenly, um, you know, small enough that you can meet a lot of people very quickly and, and, and try things very quickly. And we've had fantastic partners in the UK like AXA and now some of their clients and, uh, and amazing people like WPP, the advertising agency and their health practice who've uh, kindly let us work with them. Um, and, and that's fantastic. But the US has tremendous scale, right? So um, in our, uh, ambition is to achieve the largest possible scale before we get to B2C again, in order to just be as sure as we can be that what yeah. we do is, is really efficacious. And impact, I guess, as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, and to achieve the largest possible impact. Yes, absolutely. So, so David, I, honestly, I mean, this time has gone so quickly just because I've just been in incredibly engaged in every single word that you've said i have thoroughly enjoyed talking with you today it's been it's been such a great learning process for me and and, and just just going on that journey with you it feels like of of all that research and all that just real 
real positive um, positive approach to solving a problem which which quite literally nearly killed you I think as a way of turning that round and, and creating a positive impact on the world, I think you're doing an incredible job. And, and as I said, just to reiterate, you know, the fact that you're prevention, you're evidence-based, you're looking after people end-to-end in a service and that you're personalizing that for each person that comes through, I think as ingredients for a successful health tech company, I think that you've got, you're ticking all four boxes there. So yeah, big believer well, in what you. you're doing. I, th- I think it's awesome. And yeah thank you so much for coming on dude um the way that we end these podcasts just to let you know is that we basically just hand back over to you to summarize a little bit about yourself a little bit about the company and to close us out with any asks of that you might have of the audience and i know you guys are hiring at the moment so feel free to close us out with those (laughs) sure yeah well thanks very much for having me um on the podcast and yeah, so I'm um, David Plans, and I'm the CEO at BioBeats, which is an artificial intelligence company that does preventative mental health. And largely we work with uh, companies in the UK and soon the US, and we will eventually work with individuals again in B2C. Um, and we are indeed hiring and, and we need help. And it's essentially, if you are a computational psychiatrist, a machine learning a person, a data scientist, or even a psychologist who wants to work at the forefront of um, what digital health could do for mental health globally, then come join us. Awesome. Thanks so much, David. Hey, everybody, and thanks for listening to this week's episode and making it all the way to the end. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all of our socials so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.